Yeah. Um, for those of you who didn't know, <laughs> I think the word got out. I, um, Sunday was my 80th birthday. Happy birthday! No, no, please. Um, pray for me, please. Um, it was a, an, actually an amazing weekend. If you, if you knew Suzanne and how cunning she is, <laughs> you can imagine what she would have done. Uh, it, was a, it was a really special weekend. So um, I was not looking forward to it at all, at all. One of the tricks the kids were playing with to get me out of the house so she could do what she wanted to do was get me to a bowling alley. And the last time I bowled was 10 years. I just did not. But it actually turned out better than I thought, and I beat my son, which made it worthwhile. Wow. What was your score? I can't remember. Mine was, huh? Thomas said it was one sixty-nine. One sixty-nine. I had a turkey. I had a turkey going into the tenth and blew it. I am probably the only person in this room, and probably one of the few people ever who managed to. Throw the ball a lane over. <laughs> 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 yeah, I. Um, let's get going because there's there's. Um, I hope this is going to surprise everybody a little bit. Um, just looking ahead before we start here. Um, there's a lot of materials on the gospel to give you, and I I just don't want to overwhelm you guys. Or I'm not a biblical scholar. So, um, I don't know what that is mean for what you're going to learn from me, but um, I take the reading seriously, you know that from literature. And my own experience when I taught this a couple of years ago now at Francis was that I was shocked. And I've, you know, spent the last 30, 40 years of my life reading the gospel, so. But reading each piece by itself and reading it as a whole, so that you, you come away with a distinct sense of what Matthew's doing and how it's different from, say, John or Revelation, I think will be something of a revelation to you guys. But we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, I'm going to pass out materials, but I just don't want to overload you tonight. So there are some things back there. You should have the, uh, the takeaway from the movie, the judge, and the notes for tonight, and a summary of Matthew. I'll give you some more things next week. So week by week I'll continue to fill in background. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time on background today. So the background will fill out some, okay? But tonight I, re I really want to get going. So um, um, do we lose David and Kay? Um, I, I'm not sure that their letters got to everybody. Um, I, they've written me twice to thank us for their prayers, and th their letters were deeply heartfelt. If you receive them, you'll know. Um, you can.
David and Kay, can you hear me? They're back up again, but... Anyway, they sent a couple of emails, and if you receive them, you know. You can hear a, um, a humbled, grateful, heartfelt thank you. Um, their daughter passed away. It had been two years of prayers. You know that. And her description of it was that, um, that the church was packed. Um, I'm, I'm sure that people had been praying for her for a couple of years, and high school friends, and... Um, the one of the women who was a friend of their daughter has, be, has become a professional singer, so she sang at the church. The priest who celebrated was her favorite priest when she was a kid. Um, and you know that she would have been following the rubrics of the church through the last two years of her ordeal. So it sounded like it was a wonderful ceremony, and I know that both of them were grateful. What I, what the letter said was um, that they wanted to be here to thank everybody in person. <laughs> I have a feeling this is Kay, but I may not be. They wanted to be here in person to give their thanks in person, but they were afraid they would break down. So um, I, was, I was hoping they would be here so I could help them through that. But anyway, just know that they're thankful and um, um, so I think, I think that will, say, again, they, I think they, I think they're trying to, Doc, can you sit over here for just a time? You can go back, but. David and Kay, can you hear me? Just to watch it, I think there's whatever the struggle is, I don't know. Um, if you need to admit them. Let's, let's start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, for the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning and for your words. Um, um, ask a special blessing on David and Kay and their daughter. Um, receive her into your kingdom. Um, let Kay and Dave um, know a joy in their sorrow that they are letting her go. She's going home. She's going home. She's, if there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers quicken her release. Um, but she's going home, so there's every reason to be happy. So help them to carry a joy while they um, feel a sorrow in losing her. Let it be so for all of us, too. The, the words of the church are constantly, weekend after weekend, let us always and everywhere be thankful. We know that where you allow pain, suffering, it's always to help us make become better. So however upset we get or frustrated or despairing, we should never forget that you're doing something we don't see. That's our faith. So strengthen all of us to bring that. Chesterton called it gratitude, that we owe the world a gratitude um, before we ever criticize it. 
we have a life here. So help us to carry that with us, whatever we do. Teach us to be more grateful, to be more patient, to be more trusting. And now I ask a special blessing for the work we're about to undertake because we're going to encyclicals about you and literature that in some ways reviews you, but now we're going to hear your word directly. So help us all to take some care here. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Sue, that's right. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. Sorry. Go, go. Amen. <laughs> what to do with you? Thank you again. Thank you again. Oh gosh. Gosh. Okay. Let's start. Um, you all got the Emily Dickinson poems? Yeah. Um, read them over. We've, we've, um, Can't hear you. Here, Doc, it's here. You've got to go here. Right here, look. It says admit all. Or the little checkbox. You can hit the checkbox. Oh, there's Dave. Oh, David, can you hear us? Yes. Oh, good. Kay, can we hear? Can you hear us? Okay. Good. We just said a prayer for... The two of you and your daughter. Yes, I heard the part of it. Okay, good, good, good. I'm glad you're with us. Glad you're with us. Yes, glad to be with you all. Yeah. You all can see them, right? Yeah. yeah. Good. Wow. I can't hear Doc. It's up as loud as it'll go here. Unless Mike can do something that I'm... I can hear you just clearly. Okay. Just fine. You might turn your volume up a little bit. Um, it might help everybody, but I don't know. I don't. I, I don't even know, Mike. Yeah, I think we're okay. Let's start. Whoa! Who are you? <laughs> We always let straight. We always let newcomers come into this class, right? <laughs> Will anybody ever give me an opening where I don't put coals on somebody's head? Good to see you. Good to see you. Let's start. The most of the poems on the 
first page and a half are poems dealing with the spirit of renunciation. That, um, and if you think about it, they run so contrary to our culture because everything in our culture teaches us that um, we're not going to be happy unless we get what we want. Right? I want more, I want more, I want, I want, I want, I want. And so we think that if we're denied anything, we're going to be unhappy. How do you teach children not to be spoiled when you say they can't have something? Or any of us adults. All of these poems are about some grace given in renunciations. So I'm going to read a couple of them and then I'm going to turn to the back and read one on hope. Okay? And I'll stay with Emily Dickinson for a couple of weeks. So we'll read through some of these poems, okay? So on the, on the first page, 171. Undue significance a starving man attaches to food. Far off he sighs, and therefore hopeless, and therefore good. Partaken it relieves, indeed, but proves us that spices fly in the receipt. It was the distance was savory. We wanted we wanted it so long as we didn't have it. But once we had it, it flies. Our taste for it's gone. So there's a paradox involving our desires that in the very instance of having them gratified, we lose them. So part of the beauty of them is denying ourselves, holding it off. 11. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires source need, right? If you look at a nectar and you can't have it, say you're looking at a tree and you can't reach it, its value is going to increase as you stare at it. Yeah? So the paradox is the more we deny ourselves, the more we protect the... Think about it sexually. Food, drink, you know, the strongest desires. Um, that um, as soon as we gratify, it's gone. But if we can restrain ourselves, deny ourselves for a time, we hold on to that value. It's there. Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed to comprehend the nectar requires source need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today, this is after a battle, may have been the Civil War. Not one of all the purple hosts who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory. As he defeated dying on whose forbidden ear the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. The man who will most appreciate victory will be the one who's defeated. He lost it. Um... Last one down below. Farther in summer than the birds, pathetic from the grass, a minor nation celebrates its unobtrusive mass. I think the crickets, if I remember. No ordinance is seen, so gradual the grace, a pensive custom it becomes, enlarging loneliness. Antiquus felt at noon when August, burning low, calls forth the spectral canticle, reposed to typify. Remit is yet no grace, no furrow on the glow, 
Yet a druidic difference enhances nature now. You know, you can almost, you never see crickets. You, you know, in the afternoon, you just hear them. There's this tune that... Let's go to the end and do the one on hope. The very last one in the collection. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. That's what hope is. It's like a bird, you know, always singing. Okay, I want to see if I can do this really, really quickly. Um, if you haven't read the notes that I gave you on the judge, please do. I, I think it's a good set of notes. I think it's really good. Um, if I had more time, I'd work on it and publish it somewhere because I think it's a good movie. But um, just a very couple of things I want to remember. I want everybody to remember about the movie. It's been a couple of weeks, I know, but um, do you know what? Do you remember what the names of the parents were? Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, okay? Did you know that? Joseph and Mary. The word Hank, Henry, means, words have meaning. There are times when I was in the hospital, I almost never did not ask a nurse or a, or a you call the, who do the, no, but I almost always ask them if they knew what their names were, because some of them had really lovely names, and it's something I do anyway. Because sometimes, like one guy I think was um, Dominic or something, and I asked him if he knew the name was, or the meaning of his name. He said, "Absolutely not." And I, if you could imagine me, I said, "How in the world could you not know your name? That's your identity." Particularly when it's Dominic. Um, but Hank means ruler of the household. Glenn. Dale are names that have association with the pastoral world. A Glen and a Dale, okay, right? Hank is of the city. We know that from the, from the story, right? Chicago, big time lawyer. So, um, and Samantha from Samuel, I think means um, God has a heart, a flower, a victor. That's what Samantha means. You think this guy didn't know what he was doing in the way that he wrote this story? I mean, you could feel it all the way through. Every, everything about it meant. But in case you missed it, those are the names. Joseph and Mary and Hank and Glenn and Dale. I only want to recall a couple of things here. The first page, I think, is genuinely good because um, um, it... it It puts the characters in contrast to each other so their meaning stands out, okay? You know that Dale, Dale is, um, um, hmm? they can't, you know that Dale, I'm going to let Suzanne, or Mike if you want to, is that Chuck? Hi Chuck. They can't hear you. 
Mike, what? Can you jump in? Let him. Let him yeah, try. We can hear each other, but we can't hear Bob. Uh, I can't see Bob either. Actually. Oh. Okay. Well, they were hearing us for a while. Something's. Robert's muted. Yeah. Robert's muted. Yeah. Yeah. Robert's muted. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
right? Get Dale out of the picture and we lose a sense that there was once an innocence to our nature and now it's lost but we all long for it. Dale is the one with his photography and his manners trying to stay in touch, in, in touch with it, that innocence. Get him out and all you've got is the critical mind with everybody finding fault, making troubles, trying to be just, which is a good thing to do, but problems. If you take um, Hank out and leave Dale, we've got an innocence that's unreal. He's not going to deal with the problems of the world. Is that clear? We need both of those men for there to be a goodness, certainly of the kind that Christ got. Take Dale out, Hank loses something. He does not have that help. Take Hank, Hank out and Dale will lose something. He's too innocent. So everybody following. It's whoever this guy was knew exactly what he was doing if you put it all together. Okay? Um, read over these, please, if you haven't read them. Here are some of the major themes of the movie and the method because you can't separate them. One important item to note about the method of the movie is this. When we, I'll come to this in a second, so hold on. As we go through the movie, we're going to get all of these hints that there was something wrong in the family. There's a long period of time in which people don't remember things. The only one who holds on to them is Dale in his films. The judge, the judge can't remember because of his problems. And Hank will reach a point where he'll say something. I'll come back to it in a minute. Um, but the method is interesting. We get all these hints that there was something wrong with the judge over a large part of the family's life. I'll come to them in a minute, okay? But we don't get it. One of the, one of the values in handling it the way the, right, the author did is that by putting those in the background it protects the goodness of the judge as we watch him even if he's a tough man we still tend to like him okay um, and it's gonna it's gonna mean more but the focus of the movie is on something went wrong the father and son have been estranged this strange thing happens and the judge is accused and brought to trial and then a crisis is gonna uh, something's gonna happen and the question is, will it change? I, don't, I hate that word, dysfunctional families. All families are dysfunctional in my mind. All families are dysfunctional. But um, something's going to happen to change the dysfunction of this family. Okay. Um, there are hints of something Catholic, particularly in, uh, in Dale. Here is one of the most important things that I want to leave you with tonight. In the ancient world to the church father, there was a distinction between what they called chronos and kairos in the Greek world. You, you remember chronos from the Greek world because chronos is one of the gods. He means time. But another kind of word, it always existed. It's there in the Iliad, it's in the Odyssey. We've talked about things like this, but I want you to hold on to it tonight with special attention. Chronos and kairos. Kronos means chronology. Things happen one after the other, right? Kairos means the appointed time. An appointed time. That moment will be forever. 
Those are conversion moments. And lots of us, have, I know most people who experience conversion, something happens and you'll not forget that moment. Right? All of us have had those moments. Christ repeatedly says, my hour has not come, is not yet come. This is not the time. This is not my hour. Keeps using that word hour. Right? And in the, at the beginning, I think it's, I think it's John, it may be Luke. But at the, at the early part of that gospel, Christ says, the time is now. It may be Luke, because the, Christ's life starts earlier. The, the gospel starts with him starting his mission. So he said, the time is now, repent. That's a kairos moment. Kairos means an appointed time. Something else is happening. It breaks into Kronos time. Okay. The theme of coming home and the theme of jails. Almost everybody in this story is in jail. And it's not the jail with mortar, it's the jail inside. Everybody's imprisoned in their own lives. Most of them because of wounds and hurts and resentments that they've not let go of. Everybody is spiritually arrested. Yeah, wouldn't you say they all are? Um, if you remember Winter's Tale, those of you who remember Winter's Tale, remember that Hermione gets sent to jail. But in the opening scene before she gets sent to jail by her husband, Leontes, before Hermione is sent to jail, she's going to Polixenes to try to persuade him to stay. And she says, before the jail scene comes up, she says, will you be my prisoner? Shakespeare knows exactly what he's doing in a moment. She's kidding. There's no jail. But it's already a hint laid that she's the one who's going to go to the tower, but everybody else is in some sense of imprisoned in jail. What will get all of these people out of jail in this story? Okay. Now here's, here's where I want to go. I'm not going to go through the whole story because we don't have time. But you remember the story. Hank comes home for his mother's funeral. His dad won't talk with him. When he does talk with him, it's a mean kind of courtesy. The night of the funeral, he comes out and he says to his son, thanks for coming. Your mom would have appreciated it. It's, it's, it's an expression of courtesy. It's all the more wounding because there's nothing courtesy about it. It's a pro forma going through the motions. And all that does is make the insult deeper. Yeah? You all know that. And Hank leaves the next day. He's on the plane. He gets a call from Glenn saying, your dad's being accused of murder. He comes off and you know the story starts. I don't want to go through it all, but I want to recall these moments. When the brothers go to the bar that night, remember, and the waitress walks in and Hank is going to make out with her in the phone booth. In the first meeting before the thugs come into it and Hank has to get up and put all that to rest, you, you following me in the movie? You remembering? Remember he's in the bar and this guy comes up and he says, you're, um, what's the last name? Palmer. Palmer. You're Palmer, son. And he wants to start a fight. Hank is the one who comes in and settles it because he knows how to use the law. It's so, he doesn't hit anybody, but he's so effective. Um, while the brothers are at the bar before that moment, they're talking about their father and they're laughing. There's no resentments. They're having beer. If you remember, Glenn is the one after his father left and Hank got angrier when the father said goodnight. 
Glenn said, let's go have a beer. And, and Hank said, no. And he said, let's have a beer. And Hank goes, because he wants to have a beer. When they're there, they're talking about their father. He used to throw books at them. He'd get angry and throw journals. That's a, that's a throwaway line. Who's going who's gonna to hear it? It's a bar. They're talking loosely, you know. But they're saying, he threw big books at us when he got angry. And, and we, I don't think we think about it much until two scenes. And I can't remember which comes first. In the kitchen scene, in the storm, when they come out of the storm cellar, um, the judge is so infuriated that Dale is showing those films, showing the car wreck, because it's bringing to memory what is clearly the most painful memory in his life, that his son lost his career. So how much of his anger at Hank has to do with his own pride in his son? And if you ever watch parents get involved in athletes, you know exactly what I'm talking about because so much of the reason they're there is for their own pride. Look at my son. So to have that taken away is a, is, gives him a wound he has not let go of since. Kicks the projector over, walks out in a storm, goes to the kitchen. You all remember the scene. And the two blow up. I, I, thought, it was, I thought it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie. They are really angry at each other. It's there that we learn lots of things. The father took Hank out of Boy Scouts at 13 because he blew up a neighbor's mailbox. And he put him in detention when he rolled the car. So between the ages of 13 and 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there, what happens? We don't know. But what we do know now is here are these hints. Father's really ticked off at his son. And, and we didn't put it together, but now if we put all that stuff together, we're aware this stuff has been going on for years. Is everybody following me? Is this too fast? And, um, and it's a touching. And the son said, where were you? When I, I, I graduated first in my class, high school, where were you? I needed you. And the dad is going, oh, boo-hoo. Is this, you just wanted a pat on the back? You remember? I mean, it's just a, it's a cutting, painful, <laughs> the beautiful scene. It's the cross. And if any of you doesn't put that together, you're missing something. Because remember, I, we haven't gotten there yet. But every Flannery O'Connor story says, grace always, com grace always comes through a violence. Because we always tend to push the world off for our own world. It's an awful, angry, bitter moment. It's also potentially beautiful. Something is happening finally in that anger that's not happened in, what, 20, 25 years? When the father walks out, Hank sits down, he says, I want to burn this house down. That's straight out of Aeschylus's the House of Atreus. If you remember Agamemnon, the Agamemnon, the Lotus Bears, and um, or, um, the Libation Bears, and um, the Eumenides, the Blessed Ones. The House of Atreus was under a curse. Remember? Because of the eating of the children and feasting. And I hope you're getting the connection. A house is being cursed. It's under a curse. And he says, I want to burn this house down. Um, in the next couple of scenes, we see Hank 
hearing something upstairs. He runs upstairs. He sees his father on the floor. He helps him into the bathroom and he's incontinent. He has loose stool all over the... It's, a, it's an embarrassing, humiliating scene. Right? They're sliding in stool. And the father is saying, like the father, get off, go away, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. I don't need your help. Um, and he gets him into the bathroom to wash him off. It's a tender moment. It's an, it's an, it, both of them, both of them are absolutely vulnerable. It's ugly, it's embarrassing. Um, the father needs him and Hank needs to help him. And when they're in the shower together with the son holding his father in his arms, his daughter is knocking on the door and they're trying to find some reason to give her that won't make clear the mess that they're in. And Hank says, fine, go away or, do, you know, and both of them were laughing and saying, what do we say to her? You know, it's the first time they shared a joke in what? 30 years? Something's happening. Yeah? In the next scene, he hears something and he goes upstairs and it's Hank in a nightmare and he's going. You've rearranged everything because he's probably having um, memory lapses when his wife was alive and coming in and couldn't remember things the way they were and was yelling at her thinking the house had been changed when it probably hadn't but getting angry at her and remember you've rearranged things and then he says You're, don't do you know what Mary don't do you know what Mary and he's angry I mean it's a yelling voice don't do you know what whatever the you know what was so he's getting angry at his wife for something he's made clear to her that she shouldn't do and he's trying to be nice by not naming it while he's naming it. Don't do you know what. Is everybody following me? All of that's to the background. None of that is played up. In both of the scenes upstairs we feel more tenderness for the two of them because they're coming together. In fact when Henry's on the floor he'll say to his dad when his dad comes down who was the best lawyer you've ever it's going to play out in the end who's the best lawyer and they exchange their views. It, it's very important for the end in the boat. Are you all following? So the technique of the movie is to keep that in the background so we're focused on the judge, he's a good man, and his son, who's a good man, and the struggles they're having. Hank wants to get his father off, the father's not going to get off, he wants to, he wants to be ethnically superior, <laughs> you know, a man of integrity. Are you all falling? Okay, then it goes to the courtroom when that um, clerk describes the scene where um, Blackwell and, and uh, the judge are at the cooler. The judge suddenly visualizes it's like something breaks into his lapse of memory because he's forgotten and he sees it and it's so shocking that he passes out they take him to the hospital. So the hospital that he says, I killed him. And Hank says, so you mean to tell me you're going to swear under oath? And Hank already knows about the cancer now. Nobody else does, only Hank. So he knows about the memory loss. And he says to me, counting on this, he says to him, you mean to tell me you're going to swear under oath that you remember hitting that guy? And the father says, no. And Hank leaves. He does everything to be okay. The trial takes place. First thing Hank does is go up and say, do you remember hitting the guy? No, he walks away. That's it. Um, Dickham comes forward. By the way, we didn't go here. The name Blackwell, <laughs> the bad guy, his name Blackwell, 
I'm almost embarrassed to go here. You remember the name of the lawyer? Dickum. Dickum? <laughs> if, we, if we can just leave that one alone, I hope it'll be okay. This guy knew what he was, I mean, can you see, this guy's everything means. This is like the supernatural love of the four-year-old, everything means. Um, it's the scene where Blackwell and says what he does and um, the judge reacts and he's in jail. Um, Hank gets his father to admit that he didn't, doesn't remember hitting him. Um, Dickham comes up and says, do you mean to tell me you do, and he says, nobody drove that, you, he, he makes every convincing case he could. Nobody drives that car, you were the only one there, you were on the road, you mean to say you didn't, because what, what, what everybody's counting on is the judge's integrity. If the judge says, no, I don't remember hitting him, even if, even if Dickham says, you mean to tell me this, 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 you still don't remember hitting him? Nobody's going to question the judge's integrity. Everybody in the town believes him. And, and the judge says, no. And remember Hank's gesture? Done. The, the court case is over. You remember the scene? It's over. And then what happens? Dickham is back towards his desk and the judge says, that's not my testimony. Remember Hank's response? It didn't blink. He didn't pout. He stood up, went over, and he said, I mean, I can't, but any medical problems, judge? That's when the judge gets furious and says, I'm done with you now because now it's clear his son's going to bring out all this medical information, lapse of memory, and it's going to discredit the judge. That's when he stands up, outraged. So, like the kitchen moment, the two are livid in their anger. I think it's another beautiful scene. <laughs> no, I do, I do. The judges couldn't be angry at what his son has done, and the son couldn't be, they're so, they're so like each other. <laughs> Wonderful characters, in my mind, but it finally takes the sitting judge to say to the judge, sit down. And the judge can't disobey him because he respects it. So his son takes him through the memory stuff. Um, and he gets the, so here are the two, what I'm calling the two moments of Kairos. I want everybody to hold on to this, the two Kairos moments, the appointed time. Right? Everything else has been chronological. Everybody's stuck in this past. They're arrested in their hearts. And then suddenly we come to these two moments where that past and memories are shattered. And he says, explain it to me. Um, you, who've been one of the toughest judges in the state, everybody knows that, how, how could you have made a mistake of such leniency with Blackwell? And the judge has to make his first confession. That's a Kairos moment. It's the first time we've gotten past that judge veneer, that judicial veneer, and he says, because I saw you in him. I felt sorry for him, I wanted to help him. It's the first time we hear any emotion. So we know that his first, that is this guy, the judge should have put in jail, he killed somebody. He's out and it seems like the judge has killed him. And the son says, such leniency, it doesn't make sense. And the judge says, um, because I looked at him, 
and saw I saw you in him and I wanted to help him so it was a moment of tenderness that let that guy go when the results of it was murder and it, you know um, and so Hank is putting it together and it looks like it's all done and he walks away and then he says hold it it's over again the case is over nobody's going to convict him on that everybody knows now that he's got memory he's got bite or side effects from the cancer um, he walks away and then he stops mid-step and says wait a minute something's that's not right it doesn't fit whatever the words were he turns around and he goes back and continues the question and he said I had I had memories too where are they is everybody following so from 13 when he blew up that mailbox to the rolling of the car it's like Freud would go nuts with this I don't much care for Freud but yeah that whole period memories gone it's like too painful repressed whatever you want to call it, it's gone and then he said what happened I had memories and you can hear a son expressing his longing for a father and realized realized he never had him and we get those pictures at the lake in that moment when the judge is in the box we get the picture of the lake when Henry is a young man and he's got his son Hank in the boat you know standing in front of him and they're fishing and he said I had memories too it's painful it's, to me it's the most painful moment what's about to happen he said I had memories too what happened do you remember the judge's line because this is the takeaway line of the movie what is it yeah is everybody in the first time he said I saw you in him and he wanted to help him Blackwell he said where are my memories what happened you want to explain that he says I saw him in you he reversed it And what happened from that time on? Shunned him. That is, he held a grudge against his son, and from that point on, um, what defines the father and son is this estrangement. Is everybody following? So I thought Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah, but I, yes. I mean, I think it's a big, it's some, I mean, it's, what, there's a number of ways to describe this. One of them is you can say they're in a state of spiritual arrest. They're not growing together. They're not moving together. They're caught. That there's this estrangement. It's pretty clear to me, I think, I don't think I'm mistaken on this, that, that's why I mentioned, or described it the way I did earlier. A parent, there's a real danger for us as parents look at my son look at my son look at my son when what we're saying indirectly is look at me look at me I mean it's a t 
tough thing to do. And um, he blew up the woman's mailbox, rolls his son, whatever else was going on, we know that he and Sam were intimate. I mean, I don't know, I doubt the father knew that, but there was probably a lot of carrying on. But I think the point here is, I looked at you and saw him, is what I saw was a kid headed for trouble. And, but it's his son, and he resents it. So from that moment on, what defines his relationship to his son is the resentment he never got over. I, Go ahead, Mary. I thought in the exchange, as we said, Hank said, why did you let him off, uh, Blackwell off? And he said, because I saw you and him, so he thought there was hope. And then he turns around, like you said, and I thought he said, but you gave me a tough sentence. Why did you give me such a tough sentence, I guess the detention, for such a minor thing? And he said, the judge said, because I saw him, him. in you. Right, right, right. It's very interesting to me that Glenn's character, who had his life changed by that accident, does not show the resentment and the problems that the right. has. Right. Well, I thought that too, but I thought it was revealed at the end when we find out that Samantha's daughter was his son. And so he kind of took it out that way and said, okay, I think I'm going to go. Okay, so maybe that was his way of thinking. <laughs> I always think that I'm much darker than you. I'm a, this one, you're darker than I am on this one. I, I, you know, maybe Glenn didn't want to be a Oh, I think he did. I mean, there's every, the interesting thing about me, the way the, there's a lot that just isn't shown, you know, for the sake of the story. You can't, you can't go into everybody's lives and still have a story. But um, one of my takeaway on Glenn is that he has a kind of stoic acceptance, so he's not holding on to resentments. But I would, I was, this is me. You, I would still say everybody in that family is in a state of emotional, spiritual arrest. And one of the one of the reasons I say that is when they're at the hospital, Glenn shows no patience with Dale at all, and he says, "I, you know, I've never asked anything of you. I mean, that that's the older brother in the in the pair, or the prodigal son." Look at what I've done, look at what I've done. I've always been here, I've been, you know, that, that he himself is holding on to that legalistic look at me, how good I am, what I'm doing. He doesn't blow up, he's not holding grudges, but that's, I would, that's a stoic, a stoic acceptance. It's like there's nothing more. In my mind, it would have been, it would have been better for him to blow up and, you know, but I mean, they're different characters, but in terms of the movie, to me, Glenn, He's made a great life. He didn't bear it. He's working. He's got a family. He's a good man. Um, but there's something also lacking in him in his treatment of Dale, I thought, in the way that he treated him. And I just, he's taking care of his father. He's, he's a good, boy, this is, the, there's such a fine line in these people. He reminds me of the older prodigal son. He's doing everything. When the moment comes, he's going to say, look what I've done for you. You know that, let me finish this. So you, you know what happens, I want to go, well, the, the reason for trying to draw all this out because there's so much in that movie that we don't see and it took me, and we just did not have the time to go into this on movie night, it was too late. 
so let me leave it with this question and I just want to spend a couple minutes because we've already taken far more time than I wanted but who's the most Christ-like people in that story or are there any are there no Christ-like figures in it Who's the most? All the reason why I would say Hank is because he, to me, the most human in his emotions and everything. Everybody else is too, especially Glenn, they're just so flawed. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, who would you say is the most? Can we get the heat? Can we get the? You guys are starting to get cold again. Can you do anything? Mm-hmm. I had thought of Dale, just because he's so sweet, so giving, um, no complaining. Just I mean, it's just it's his character. Um, I was thinking, but I don't know if he's the would be the out of um, all of the characters. He's the most. Could Dale survive on it? Christ? You know, Christ is clever. He knows what's going There's nothing Christ doesn't know. He has to deal with things everywhere. He says, pray, be awake, be on guard, be vigilant, um, be as cunning as the wolf and gentle as the dove. Would Dale fit all that? Dale's a wonderfully kind man, but I took go back to what I said earlier. I just think you have to hold Dale and Hank they both reveal something about each other. Heather, did you have? I, I was just going to say, so when you're asking who's the most Christ-like in a way, you know, because Christ had all things in balance. So all everything was in perfect balance. So the way the question is, who has all things in this balance? And I would say, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> Is there, does nobody become does nobody become better in this movie? Well, no, I'm not saying they don't become better, better for sure. But they have aspects of Christ. There's no one that sticks out. Like I'm asking, does which one has more or most in the movie? Hank sure gives a lot of forgiveness in the He was forgives a lot. Yeah. Did he in the beginning? I'd say he wasn't very forgiving. I mean, he's a lot, a lot like his best. I think, I would say, I'm going to call this to, for me, Hank is without a question. Just without a question. Um, he has to suffer the most. The insults of the father at the beginning, the insults. When the father goes to jail at the end, again, Hank has given, I mean, Hank has fought, Hank has changed. And I, my, my argument would be in that blow-up scene in the movie, in the courtroom scene. You know, it's almost as if after the blow-up, remember the term in the tragic paradigm, peripatia, the turn and recognition, anagnosis, that turn that takes place in tragedy? That's why tragedies are not bad. They always address an injustice and resolve them. So even if there's a lot of deaths, it's the cleansing that's the condition of a new regime. 
Hank has a recognition, I think so does his father, for his father to say, um, even though he justifies it, you know, was that so bad? Father's been holding on to that forever. I saw you and him, and he wanted to help him, even though it was a bad mistake. That's an open public confession by a judge who is not wanted to show that he's vulnerable anywhere. And Hank has to look at him when his father says, because I saw him in you, that had to be another humiliating moment because that's when his father turns off. And his father says goodbye to the other sons and once again says nothing to um, Hank. Except you can quibble with me or quarrel with me on this, but I, I just think father and son are utterly changed people. When the father goes to jail, when he has to face that, he's put everybody, he, he's in his family, everybody's, has to be accountable, strictly accountable for everything. He's put everybody in jail. Now he's got to go to jail. Um, Hank has, has had to learn to do something, not for what he gets out of it, um, but for loving his father and getting him off, and the great, the great, what's the word? Affirmation, it's vindication. When he's in the boat, the two of them in the boat, and the father says, you are. Hank doesn't know what he's meaning. He says, what do you mean? He says, you are the best lawyer I've ever. That, the movie ends. You know, we turn away, Hank is fishing, and so I would say both men have come far, far closer to Christ, much closer, and I would say Hank, I would say Hank even more because he has to suffer and he has to let a lot go. He's lost his wife. When he goes back to Chicago for that case, he's a completely different man. The other lawyer says, I thought you went easy on me. And he shot the crumpled up paper towel and missed. <laughs> and he goes back and looks at that twirling chair. It's a different man. He, he, and he says, I'm home. When the guys go by, he says, I'm here. I'm home. I just think father and son are different men. They, the, the estrangement's over. The buried wounds, the hurt feelings. I don't, think, I don't think any of us is meant to stay in suffering. I don't think that's what Christianity is, what Christ is. But there, there are kairos moments, moments of a cross, where something has to happen to break through the spirit of unforgiveness, the hates, the wounds, the pride. And it seems to me that happens to both men in that movie. Anyway, let me stop because we're way past. Sir, go ahead. Yeah. I thought it was significant that Hank tried to help to do what was right before they reached any kind of, before any forgiveness. While he was still holding all the hurt and hadn't released it, he was still trying to help his father. It didn't go the other way. Yeah. Don't forget those two terms, Kronos moments and Kairos moments. And there's a significance about the hydrangeas, does anybody remember? Go. The hydrangeas in the movie. Yes, I remember. She died when she... Go ahead, where are you going with it? Well, we don't know that. Oh. <laughs> we don't know that she died during the hydrangeas. Yes, we do. We don't find it out till 
later. Oh, well, yes. But he gets the call. He finally. But when he's leaving the house in the beginning to go to Carlin Mills to fly, he's going out to the car and they, I don't know his wife or say say something. He says, "Water the hydrangeas." Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you don't know why he's. I mean, that's kind of like. A, a Wait, is that the father who's saying it? Hank. The, Hank is saying, "What are the hydrangeas?" To who? To his wife. He says to his wife. Oh, 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 that's right, because it, right, think, right. Why would he say, what are the hydrangeas? He's got other things on his mind. But then you find out in the movie that his mom died yeah. taking care of the hydrangeas. Boy, good for you. There may be hope. I'm a garden person, so I noticed that. Do you all remember when the movie began, his wife was divorcing him, and as he's leaving, he tells her to water the hydrangeas. And then, but he picks it up on the phone again. I missed that, yeah. Let's, let's go to the Gospels. I hope you enjoyed that movie. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Good movie. Please tell me you had to watch that movie several times. I got it the first time. I didn't have to think about it. It was instantaneously. While it was all happening, I was going to Suzanne. Did you know this? Did you know this? <laughs> I, you know, it's... it's <laughs> right. Right. Well, some of us are just more gifted. That's what else can you say? Well, this is true. I like the part where he. Wait, hold on, because I've got to say, I've told you this before. Wait, so often I go on my feelings. When a movie has that kind of an effect on me, and it did, I mean, I, I'll get teary on a movie like that. It just, it's a, when I, when I have that kind of feeling, I'll go back. Because there's no, there's no way I would ever, you know, I can pick up some things, some, you know, because I want to put it together to say, what produced that? How did, yeah. how do we get here? But I want to, but I want to add this too, because I've said this to you before, and you should, you should not have forgotten it. I told you the, the um, coming out of um, undergraduate school at Berkeley, it was an English major, so you read the beginnings in English and you go forward. I'd never read the Iliad or the Odyssey, the Iliad or any, but I'd heard about them. I picked up the Iliad. I could make no sense of it. Ab absolutely no sense. And then I went to UD. That's no, that. It's well, it's true. I'm that. I'm being really. I mean, I was. I would never have said what I did a minute ago if I weren't. If I. If you knew I wasn't lying. Um, I could make no sense. I'm not kidding. None at all. I told you this the first time I did poetry with his teacher in his poetry section. I couldn't understand it at all. I didn't. I wasn't raised on literature. It, it was not a part of my life. When I went to UD, I, I did the Iliad in a, prog in a program, and then I, I came to know it somewhat. I mean, at least it, certain things were said that helped me get a sense of the whole. But there's no way even that I would have said, I know this book. I came to know that book from teaching it year after year after year after year, dealing with, dealing with kids who were too embarrassed to ask questions. And I've told you this, it, the, I cannot emphasize the meanings of this enough. 
The students who asked the simplest questions that they were too embarrassed were the ones that made me think most because it, it made me have to go look at those things you take for granted. One of the best teachers I ever had, and I'll never forget him, he said, don't, I'm, I, this is the principle, if you read my writing, you'd see the same thing in my writing. I'm just the way that I write. Um, don't overlook the obvious. I, I, that, I cannot tell you the effect that that's had on me as a teacher, because you, watch the way teachers teach. So many of them are in their heads. You know, um, I know teachers have been teaching the Iliad for 20 years, who I'd say don't know it very well. You know, um, but there's, there's, I'm laughing at you. Thank you for your honesty. There's, <laughs> how, how many times have we watched that movie, Doc? Well, we've only watched it through the The last, the last month before, before the class, the last month before the class, the last month before the class, trying to get ready for it, because I was trying, because the, what happens in the courtroom scene is so important, the turn that takes place there. Um, we, we went over it multiple times, and over and over and over again, I had to say, Suzanne, which came first? When was this said? You know, and what did it mean? I mean, we 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 talk about it at home. Yeah. There's and and I, I and I can honestly say that our conversations at a dinner table when we're talking about something, I I just don't think. How can I put this? When we go over something, it's rare. I think I don't think I can. I don't think I've ever come away from a conversation with her when I didn't find myself understanding something better because of what she said and because of what I thought. Because if, it's certainly true for me. I know that when I start talking about a thing and I hear my, my thoughts, I begin to see things more clearly than if I leave them in my head. I cannot tell you how much I believe. If you don't talk about something, you'll never understand. We're not angels. We do not belong in our I'm not kidding. We do not belong in our heads. Intellectuals are the, least, are the last people you want to trust about. People who are in their bodies. I learn a lot about a work from talking about it. Just hearing. Because I'm talking, it clarifies in my mind. So when we talk about something, it, it's, I usually come away and I think she comes away both of us thinking, seeing more. That's just a commonplace. What the, the danger for us is, the real danger is if we, if we have a bottle of wine and we start talking and get engrossed, it's hard for me to stand up. Yeah. She was so selfless, and he's the one who pointed out. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. No. And, and, she, she, and she didn't seem to hold a grudge. She told him that she knew these bad things about it. Exactly. But I mean, she did everything. She loved him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So did you ever have that kind of 
Oh yeah, no, I, as a matter of fact, sure, it's really funny. I got distracted by the, because when I was going to answer the question myself, who's the, I would have said Hank and Samantha for exactly those reasons. She, and if you remember my meaning that I gave, you know, um, believer, God, the, the victor, you know, and she's so good. In the scene when he's, they're upstairs ready to make love, and he starts getting scrupulous like his father, she's all ready to make love with him and let him go. And, and she makes it clear, I'm not leaving this place. And later, at the, and then when he comes to her to talk about who's the daughter, and she says, are you there again? You know, she's, she's she, her way of putting it, I dealt with it and moved on. And then in the beach scene, when they're waiting for the verdict, she says, you are the most selfish man, <laughs> most simultaneously selfish and wonderful man you are. I love the way you defend people and beat people up or something like that at the same. She is, she is, she's not in the dark about his sins. She loves him. I agree with you. I agree with you. I'd put, I'd put the two of them, Hank and Samantha, the top. Let's go here. I want to do something before. I've got to get this out. I'm not going to start reading, actually, I'm going to start reading Matthew in a strange way because I want to, I want to get something out here at the beginning. I'll, I'll pick up next week with the background, some of the background stuff. But here's where I want to start today. I want everybody to pay attention to what I'm reading. I'm going to read the opening of the, of the four, I got it, sorry, God, thank you. Thanks. Got it. It's easier for me. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I'm going to read the opening of the first four gospels, or the gospels. Okay. I was going to do this anyway. This is not. I'm not dodging. Anything. I wanted to do this. Here's my question to everybody, and I'm going to put the question to you. So it's test time. Are you ready, Mary? Ready. <laughs> Look at you. She's her her feet are kicking under the table. <laughs> Oh, God, you guys. Okay. I'm going to read the opening because I want to establish from the beginning what the authority, the ground of authority of each of the Gospels. Because if we can do that, you'll understand a lot about the other Gospels and you'll understand a lot about Matthew. Okay? Now, just so you know, Matthew was... Mark was the first gospel written, and then Matthew. They were written, as nearly as we can tell, between just before the uh, the um, um, the temple was destroyed. To I, I can't remember 110, 20, 30 years or later. Um, there's lots of controversy about the Bibles today. Because biblical studies has taken a turn towards the sciences. I want to go into this more, but not tonight. You remember when we were reading Regensburg Address that um, Benedict said, Hartneck, remember, had read the Gospels and came to the conclusion that Christ was a great prophet, but he was not the Son of God. In a sense, that's a perfect example of what so many biblical scholars do today. They're reading the Gospels through the tenets of science. So wherever miracles are taking place, they've got to use their powers of reason to explain them away. So a lot of biblical criticism today, because it assumes 
They, remember, we've done this. Now you'll know it. If you didn't know it before, it, it assumes it assumes materialism, a monist belief. What's materialism? Somebody say please quickly. To be a materialist today in, in Chester terms is what? Only matter matters. Right? Mind didn't create it. Matter makes everything. The mind is something to explain away as matter. Evolution, same thing. We've gone through it. So you guys know this. So, so many of the biblical scholars who are working today start with materialist assumptions. They're monists. There's only one thing, matter, and everything has to be in accord with that because they're following science. Okay? So a lot of biblical criticism, you'll hear, you'll hear priest, particularly in the Anglican world, Episcopal world, in England, they're full of them. Priests who will deny the resurrection or that Christ raise people from the dead, they will just deny it. They'll explain, I've heard the silliest explanations of the multiplication of the fishes, just ridiculous. They all had lunches, you know, they brought lunch. I mean, it just goes on and on. Oh, anyway, I want you to know that, okay? So know going in that people approach the Bible with their own assumptions. And you know me because it's been a principle since we started. I'm asking everybody to get rid of any assumptions and I, and I would like in some way to ask if you could get rid of your assumptions as a Catholic, if you can. Because I know lots of Catholics who read the, ba the Bible badly. So a faith that isn't always going to give you the help you want, I'd ask you to read it with open eyes. Now here's where I'm going. There are, um, there are lots of people today who believe you should read the the Gospels, the Bible, through the tenets of science. You'll hear lots of people in the church encouraging believers to read it in literary terms, as a narrative, or in terms of a genre. I've heard Bishop um, Barron, whom I greatly admire, encouraging people to read it and see it in terms of genres, as if genres are there. They're there. There are scientific things there. We should bring all of these things in. But the most important thing to hold on to is this. And it's, this is the beginning and end of it all. This is not another work of literature. It's the Word of God. It has to be read that way. If we don't get rid of any ideas that are in the way of that, we're not reading well. This is the Word of God. If, if we start with another belief, like a materialist or an evolutionist, we're not going to read it well. That's just a given. I hope everybody sees that. So somewhere, become aware of your own beliefs and be careful because genres are here. It's a thing, Baron keeps pressing the beauty of the thing. It's a beautiful work of art. But it's principally should be known for its truth, its goodness, its beauty, its those transcendentals because this is God speaking. Okay? So hold on to that. Now here's what I want to do. I want to read the beginning of each of the Gospels and with whatever time we have left, I want to ask everybody what the difference is between them. What's the authority on which this Gospel rests? What ground of authority? So here's Matthew. You know that Matthew begins with a genealogy um, from... Um, Abraham through David to Christ. Now hold on to that. 
Matthew begins with a genealogy from Abraham through David to Christ, okay? And then he says, after that long genealogical introduction, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, so he goes to his birth after the genealogy. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with the child of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was going to put her away, you remember, and the angel comes and says, don't do that. She's going to conceive a child by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Um, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the day, Herod hears about it. Remember, the wise men come. Herod wants to get rid of Christ because he hears him as a threat. And you all know what happens, okay? So the beginning of Matthew is the genealogy and then a description of Christ's birth. Okay? This is Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It starts with John the Baptist um, calling everybody conversion. He goes throughout Judea baptizing. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and had a locust girdle around his waist, ate locusts, wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. By the way, if, in case anybody doubts the Trinity, we get talk of the Father, we get talk of the Son saying, I am in the Father, and we get constant references to this person called the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Um, um, John is arrested. This is um, paragraph 14 in Mark. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. This is a kairos moment. This is an appointed time. So whatever else has been going on, it's all been leading to this. Um, he was going through Galilee and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And he begins to gather his disciples, okay? Is everybody following? If, there's, if I'm going too fast, tell me and I'll slow down. You've seen how Matthew starts, and you've seen how... So Matthew starts with a genealogy going back to Abraham. Mark starts with... Um, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was written in Isaiah, it starts with a prophecy from Isaiah, a prophecy, and then goes to John, who's baptizing, who will baptize Christ. Okay? That's Mark. Luke, hold on to this, you guys. This is important. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative, lots of books were being written about Christ. You can imagine. Lots. Lots of them are apocryphal. They're, they're not taken as authoritative, canonical. All these books are being written, Luke is saying, inasmuch as all this is going on, I want to put down things as I got them from those who are eyewitnesses and give them to you. He got them from eyewitnesses. He's giving them to somebody who's not seen those things. Is that clear? And it goes to Zechariah. So it describes all that happened to Zechariah when he went to the temple, remember? And his wife was barren. And um, he... Um, he has a vision telling him what's going to happen and he didn't believe it, he laughed at it and he's um, struck silent. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You can't believe that she's going to be pregnant. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God and I am sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold you will be silent and unable to come to pass because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And you know it happens that she will conceive, um, he goes home and they will take the child to the temple and um, when they give it his name his tongue will be released and the people will be amazed. Okay. So, Matthew, genealogy, the birth of Jesus. Um, Mark was the um, Isaiah's prophecy. And what was else? John the Baptist. And Luke is Luke writing a narrative because he knows all these other things are being written. And he wants to pass it on as authoritative because he got it from people who saw it. And then it goes to Zechariah. Um, um, and Elizabeth, um, who will conceive, who will conceive, John the Baptist. Okay. Here's John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He'll describe Christ coming into the world, and... Um, um, people come to John asking him if he's Elijah and he says no he's come to prepare for the one who's going to come and shortly after he says behold the Lamb of God and we know at that point that it's God and it's the Lamb who will take the place of the sacrificial Lamb who's been at the center of the Jewish tradition since the Passover am I going too fast is everybody clear is everybody all right Okay, test time.
we've got four different Gospels. Wait, so, here, hold on. So, this is... Lots of people are going to say, and they're going to give it as a reason for not... Like the, so, remember Chesterton's description of skepticism? That skepticism was one of the qualities of our age. Disbelief. The age doesn't... It uses its mind to explain away things. Okay? There are lots of people who are skeptical who will say, you've got four different accounts of the same event, and they don't line up. They're not the same, which they take as a reason that they're wrong. You can't, they're unreliable. You can't trust them, okay? We've got four different accounts. Now, I don't want to get into that. What I want to do is get to Matthew, but I want, to, I want everybody to see a couple of things here. So as if you were four people standing on a corner and you witnessed an accident, it's not uncommon that you get four very different reports because you get four very different men. One of them might happen to be an artist who talks too much. <laughs> you know, I mean, who, who knows what you're going to get, right? Um, and some of the um, descriptions may not even square with each other, which would raise questions about how perceptive they were or whether they were misled in their perceptions. So there's reasons to doubt, okay? But here's my question. We've got the, the beginnings of the four accounts. The beginnings show us the authority of that gospel, the ground of that authority, a reason why we should believe it. So let's get them out. What's the authority, the ground of authority for Matthew? The, the genealogy. What's the principle behind that? How does it, how does it now, differ? Go ahead. That's part of the Jewish religion was that from the throne of David would come the Savior. So that would have hit the Jews pretty good, I thought. You know, yeah. That this was something they understood. This whole tradition. Yeah. 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 Genealogy was very important. Sorry? Genealogy was yep. very important. Yep. Yep. Say the first part of it. I did. Make it more concrete. Concrete, yes. Yes, yeah. Because set that next to John. In the beginning was the Word. How concrete is that? Truly, how concrete is that? In the beginning is the Word. The Word was with God. I mean, all of those. How concrete is that? What else about Matthew? It's a historical. Yep. Yep. All of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's set in nature. I think one of the most important things about Matthew is that it's showing, it's showing Jesus' humanity. There can't be a question about it. The historicity can't be doubted. Here's this long line. It's all recorded. Jesus comes out of it. So at this point, we can't question its historicity. That it happened. It's natural. So... Matthew's focus is on Jesus' human nature. He belongs to this tradition. And it would have spoke authoritatively to the Jews because they gave so much import to the natural line of a family, the passing down. And notice where it starts. After the genealogy, now in the birth of Jesus, what can be more natural? Right? It's showing the humanity of Jesus. We go from that genealogy to his birth. He was born and raised. 
So everything about the beginning of Matthew is rooted in nature. This is this was the point of Benedict's talk at Regensburg. The, the problem with Islam and the fundamentalist Christian is what? They've lost a sense of the logos in nature. Matthew's doing everything he can to affirm Jesus' humanity. He belongs to this. He can't be more of time. God, he's related to all these people. And one of the interesting things about that gene genealogical list, there are whores, killers. You know, there's a lot of people who are not good. Jesus belongs to that line. So anybody expecting purity should look for another God. Okay. What about Mark? Okay. Flesh it out, okay. Yep. So the base, go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Yep. 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 It's written in Isaiah, Behold, I send my messengers before thy face, who shall prepare thy way, thy voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who is that prophet who's being sent? John. So it's not only the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah, but it's coming from Isaiah's prophecy to John the prophet, who will prepare, in fact, he will close out, I think, I think, and I'm not, he will close out the prophetic tradition. This will be it because he will be the one who will baptize Christ and bring Christ, bring him to his mission. So a whole, so a whole prophetic dimension, a whole sacred prophetic dimension is now the basis of everything that Mark is gonna do. Mark was the first gospel writer, I think Luke, um, I'm sorry, um, and then Matthew who followed Mark and then um, Luke and John. So in Mark it goes on from that prophecy to describe um, John and what he does and the meeting between him and Christ. Luke. What's the ground of Luke? Go ahead. What? Wanting to what? Wanting to know detail and to put it in there. Because to me, he's very detailed. Mm -hmm. But I think he's giving eyewitness account. Go ahead. What did you? I just thought he, he did his research. He went to the, oh, the people who had seen him, you know, who met Christ directly. So yeah. he had the word of those. Yeah. He knows that a lot of things are being written about Christ. <laughs> And it must have been like today. A lot of people were skeptical. A lot of people were overriding. A lot of people were claiming things they shouldn't have claimed. Probably made him greater than Zeus in the wrong way. I mean, who, you know, who knows? But all of these accounts, he knows how to describe this. It's like somebody searching in a haystack. 
truly, he's got to search through things to pull out the truth. Because there's all sorts of misinformation going on. Um, so he's going to receive it from people who experience things firsthand and pass it on to somebody who's not, which is an interesting mode. It's, it's like the truth-telling or piece of writing that you get it from people who know and pass it on to those who don't. It's, it's, I mean, it's the situation almost all of us are in. Um, and then it goes not to John, well, it goes to John, but his parents. So once again, direct, indirectly to John with Zachariah and Elizabeth. Um, a prophetic element comes into it because Gabriel's going to talk, talk with um, Zechariah. Um, and then we get the account of, the, um, of Elizabeth greeting Mary and John jumping in the womb, which is a, a, um, a miraculous moment. So Luke is um, trying to pull out the truth from all of these accounts and goes to directly to Zechariah and then to John um, with an angel, with a vision. So once again, a, a prophetic and a miraculous dimension of meaning. Heather, did you have something? Oh, right. Yeah. He has all these intimate details about, you know, he has the, the most about Jesus' youth, and he has the most about Mary's presence, even within Jesus' ministry. And so, you know, tradition does hold that he was actually able to speak with her. Yep. I mean, what better primary source Right, right. If I can just take off from that, I mean, you're sort of getting ahead of me, but you, what you did is absolutely, I mean, goes better to the point I was getting at earlier, but um, one of the problems, you, you, I think, we haven't done enough novels together, we did the Iliad and the Odyssey. When you get into modern literature, you're going to find yourself dealing, we'll get to them, we'll get to a couple of stories. You'll get to a, a story which will make you question the reliability of the narrator. I'm thinking of one of um, um, not Flannery O'Connor, but Eudora, Eudora Welty's short stories. There's a movie or a story called uh, "Why I Live at the Post Office." It's it's probably one of her finest stories, but it's told from a point of a, of a young girl, and I can't tell you what's going to happen. But it's a major it's a major aspect of modern fiction because in the 20th century, early 20th century, late 19th, it won't happen in Dickens. It won't be there in um, George Eliot or Trollope or you know all those 19th century English writers. Because we're not skeptical enough yet. But when you get to the beginning of the modern world with Darwin and Freud and everybody, a skeptical mindset gets in and suddenly major novelists, world-renowned novelists will write novels that put you in a position of having to question everything that's said. That's just one of the qualities of modern novels. You go in and find yourself lost. Boxes and boxes and boxes. And you're touching on it, I mean, which is what Heather just said is so true. Because one of the questions that skeptics ask, rightfully in some sense, is how did they know all this? How in the world could anybody have known all of this? Matthew could have explained it easily enough. But how could Luke have, have known about this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth? Truly. I'm, I'm going to put this as hard as I can. 
um, so this is what these guys do in their um, their off time make up these fanciful stories about meetings between women who the hell does he think he is where do you get this stuff how, how can you make that up because because you're talking about God and God is doing these things and who has the authority to do I mean you follow yeah no. who are these people no I'm not following your line of reasoning are you are you trying to create uh, a scenario by which Luke uh, established the infancy narrative what I'm trying to do is jump on what piggyback on what Heather said rightfully I think because we have a history there's you know there's a tradition behind it that um, Luke got all this information in his talks with Mary and it's an important thing to know because lots of modern critics, skeptical critics, would say, who does this guy think he is? How would he have known that? How would he have had, how would he have had access to it? And on that basis, because they're so skeptical, they discount it. That's a very modern tendency. And it's led to people denying Christ's resurrection, raising Lazarus, I mean, it'll, it'll, the, the multiplication of the fish. You'll, Luke and the Christian community, the writers didn't live and write within a vacuum. They lived within a community. They lived with people who were uh, gave testimony, personal testimony. Right. Yeah, yeah but remember, what, what? Why is Luke writing? He's the original fact checker. Huh? He's the original fact checker. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's exactly the point. Because remember, <laughs> there's all these testimonies being written, and clearly. Lots of them are not right. And people could believe them. It's a really dangerous time. There's lots of people write, writing lots of things. And the fact that they lived in a Christian age was not a reason for believing them. Because all those people, remember at that time, there's no such thing as a Christian community yet. It's just beginning to form. But the point is, the best Jews you couldn't believe. The best Christians you couldn't believe. Luke's basis is to say there are all these accounts I'm writing this so that everybody will be clear on this so you've got Matthew taking one ground Mark another Luke a very different we've got to go so here let me because what's the basis of John wait so John begins in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has, seen, has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It immediately goes to John, and we're in, in Christ's life. And very shortly here, after they meet, um, John will say of Christ, Behold the Lamb of God. What's the, what's the basis of John's narrative, his gospel account? What's he doing that's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? He's putting Jesus as being with God since the beginning. Jesus is God. What's the problem? Wait. So wait, what was the first word? And the second mystical. mystical, yeah. And what's the problem? Or literal? Could be, but you know, light and darkness, depending on how people understand it, right? 
Um, what's the problem? Is there no problem here? We, we can save Luke. Luke talked with Mary. So you can account for that. When some guy goes around saying, in the beginning, huh? Wow. But take my question. How does he know? Yeah, how does he know? Thanks. We just did Luke and Mary. I mean, you can account for it. Are there, are, boy, by the way, so the East, this is a generalization, but the East is going to be very otherworldly. The East has always been that way. And the West has been far more naturalistic, concrete, and correct. You've got this guy beginning the fourth gospel going, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's with God in heaven. This is not Luke talking to Mary. Who does this guy think he is? Somebody answer this. He was the closest one to Jesus. He what? And so, and so he would know. This okay. gospel was written last, right? What? This gospel was written last, and so it gives this added dimension. So you've got all these avenues to Christ. You've got the natural. You've got the um, religious tradition with the prophets. You've got the investigative reporter, the scientific, and now you have the theological. And it kind of... Theological is not going to do it. I like mystical. Because he, I mean, everybody, it's, theology is us about things we don't know. John is speaking as if he were there in the Trinity. Right. And, the, and, the, and your question. Or, or. Wait here, just because we're, I'm so sorry. One of the, we're, I don't want to get ahead, but I'm going to do this. In John, what we're going to, this is going to be so different from Matthew, because we're doing Matthew, we're only doing two Gospels, Matthew and John, and we're doing it because I want to set the natural and the mystical, the supernatural, next to each other. In John, you're going to find John recording all of these moments where Christ is going, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Would everybody have gotten from those I am statements what John got from them? Leave it there. I don't want to talk. But think about all of these things. We're starting Matthew. We've got four different perspectives. The ground of authority for each one is different. And it, it's important finally because it's going to say something about that person they're all about. The incarnation. That the divine and human come together in this man. And nobody understands it at the time. So we'll start Matthew directly. No more movies. <laughs> uh, we'll start Matthew, but I, I, um, you know, it might be good just on your own this week. Go, go through the beginnings of the gospel again and take a look at the beginnings because they're very, very different. Um, and the difference will carry through in the gospel. 
What we, what we see in the beginning of Matthew will carry through. What we see in the beginning of John, which that's why you've got the synoptics in John, because John is so different from the synoptic. What he's doing is radically different. And lots of people would say, how does, how does he know? How does he know? Talk about the word like he's off in heaven somewhere with the Trinity? Well, having grown up in the totally Protestant area, it was, it was divinely inspired, period, end of discussion. Except, wait, hold on. <laughs> 